0: Well, uh, please uh, turn with me your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. You know, as you're you're turning there, uh, I think there's a a pretty heavy responsibility that the pastor faces uh, when it comes to taking a new call, uh, when it comes to uh, preaching God's Word to the congregation. Um, The difficulty comes in that his responsibility is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, you know, if, if you're like me, you might enjoy reading old Puritan sermons, um, and uh, you look in kind of awe at some of these collections of sermons that old Puritan, Puritan preachers had. There's an old uh, Puritan minister, I can't remember his name, but he spent 20 years in the book of Job alone, and you think, wow, how exhausting. <laughs> you know, that's one book. You can think about how great it is to, at the end of those 20 years, have a deep knowledge of that book, but there creates a, a, something of a pedagogical problem, doesn't there? Um, you still have 65 books to go. i uh, and, and not saying that it's a mismanagement of time, not that it's a waste of time, but for the pastor, when his job is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, we have to think carefully and thoughtfully and uh, wisely about how it is that we minister uh, the Word. And uh, I'm not saying that to knock expository preaching. I hope you're recognizing now that I am a full proponent of expository preaching here in the mornings. We will work our way. Uh, book by book in the mornings, uh, alternating between genres, between Testaments, New Testament, Old Testament, prophets, Gospels, uh, uh, letters. So you could get a a steady diet of God's Word, right? We know how difficult it is uh, to read certain parts of Scripture, and I think it does us well uh, to uh, exercise in ourselves into thinking how to work through, for, an, for instance, the historical uh, books of the Old Testament versus Paul's letters and so on and so forth. But we're still left with that question, how do we proclaim the whole counsel of God? Well, in the 1560s, um, there was uh, a man by the name of Zacharias Ursinus and uh, uh, Caspar Olivianus. Uh, who uh, composed and crafted one of the earliest Reformed catechisms known as the Heidelberg Catechism. And the particular model, the so, so-called Heidelberg model that uh, they instituted, uh, was a practice we see in so many of the, the Continental Reformed churches, in the Continental, let's say, the Dutch Reformed tradition. We have expository preaching in the mornings, but the evenings is spent for more uh, catechetical purposes. Catechetical is a fancy-pants word, meaning instruction. Um, And that's what our goal here is uh, in the evenings. Going to be a slightly modified form. What you see in the Heidelberg model is they just work their way through the Heidelberg Catechism every year. Might make the evening sound a little monotonous. Uh, And so uh, I think... Uh, we have a way forward, but at least presents us a base model to where we can uh, uh, hit different portions of Scripture, uh, broader sections of doctrine, things like that, things that will be given for your benefit and your uh, edification. You think of the Shorter Catechism question three. Um, What do the Scriptures principally teach? Scriptures principally teach two things, right? What man is to believe concerning God, in other words, matters of doctrine or faith, and of course, what man's duty is to God, how man is to respond. So there's a twofold facet to biblical teaching that of doctrine or faith and life, what it is to live these things out in the practical day to day. And so that is my plan. Uh, I know this introduction sounds somewhat lengthy, but since it's our first night back uh, in the saddle, I figured I'd at least explain the method uh, to my madness uh, for the coming weeks and I hope years. Uh, The idea is that uh, typically uh, for one portion of the year, one quarter of the year, let's say the fall, we'll spend time focusing on doctrine. In the spring, we'll be focusing on practical matters of life. Uh, And then, of course, in the summer, uh, thinking through uh, issues of wisdom. So the the idea is perhaps uh, to begin working our way through either the Ten Commandments and then the book of Proverbs in the summer in perpetuity, just keeping wisdom before us constantly, not being in any rush. Think, what does it look like to be a son of the king? and to walk in the wisdom that God has given us. What does it look like to trust in Christ? And who is Christ? As we think of our doctrine, uh, those questions of doctrine, who God is, Trinity, and attributes, Scripture. Um, What is our doctrine of Scripture? How does it differ uh, from other uh, denominations? Uh, Who is Christ? What has He done for us? What's our doctrine of salvation? What is uh, the church? And so on and so forth. And then, of course, we have to consider issues of temptation, suffering, marriage, vocation, The means of grace, what is worship, those practical matters of life. And I think the evening is a right time for us to take the time working through particular portions of Scripture to be able to do that. So I figure one of the best places to begin is to consider a very simple question, what is the church? And the church is one of those topics that can probably fall into either category of faith or life. We ask, have to ask ourselves what it is before we can think through the practical outworkings of it. But uh, since uh, we are resuming evening worship, since I'm new to the area, I figured it would be really helpful to think through the basic components of what Christ says and what the Bible says regarding the people of God. And so uh, if you see the handout uh, that you had on your way in, um, I have a rough uh, outline of the topics we're planning to cover over the next four months or so. Uh, I say four months uh, because my my plan is also, we have to have the psalms always before us as well. So my plan is for every third Sunday evening to preach through a psalm. So that way, and every fifth Sunday. Uh, so that way we get about 12 to 15 psalms a year. That way we'll get uh, the Proverbs before us in the summer. That way we'll get doctrine in life, as well as expository preaching uh, in the morning, alternating Old Testament and New Testament. So uh, hopefully uh, that helps you make sense of what we're trying to do. I'm My goal, I'm trying to fulfill my vows of proclaiming the whole counsel of God, uh, and, and this is one way to get to that. Uh, But when we come to talking about the church, we have to ask ourselves, what's the big deal? If you ask people on the streets, uh, even here in Corvallis or even in Wheaton, Illinois, you will get different answers. Uh, For many, uh, many people see church as an optional thing. Um, Really accents the, the individualistic nature that we find uh, in uh, the world around us. Uh, one of my favorite cartoons, uh, yes, I'm a grown man, yes, I love cartoons, is King of the Hill. Uh, it reminds me of home. It's about a, a family in, in Texas. Uh, any cartoon, any TV show that gets spent an entire episode just talking about different types of lawnmowers, I think, shows there's real comedic skill Um, But there's one of my favorite episodes in in King of the Hills. Uh, uh, Tom Petty is actually in the show for a little bit, Um, and he plays uh, this particular character uh, where a family gets offended uh, and decides to leave their church because somebody stole their pew, Um, and so they decide to go church hopping. uh, And uh, as the main character, Hank, is trying to figure out where to go, which new church to visit, uh, Tom Petty's character says, Well, you can just do what I do, just just me and God uh, at the local bar every Sunday at 11 a.m. He has this idea that all he needs is just me and Jesus. Or how many of us know this? Piece of, I just, all I need is just me and my Bible. That's it. Don't need anything else. Don't need the people of God. The church is seen uh, as a voluntary association in one sense, which in one sense we would say it's voluntary. Right? Nobody here is obligated to come. The state doesn't obligate us to come. But at the same time, they see it as voluntary even for the believer. It's uh, a nice get-together. It is a nice place where we, where we come simply to fellowship because we have like-minded um, uh, uh, activities that we like in mind. If you were to go to the Deep South, where I'm from, uh, you will find that dispensationalism runs rampant, and you would ask uh, some of those people, what, what is the church? To them, you get a different answer. The church is a parenthesis in the plan of God. Right? You have, you have the Old Testament people of God, uh, the, the, the Jews... And then you have this, this parenthesis, the church, which i uh, not really sure what to do with it. It seems like a plan B in the mind of God. Uh, and then, of course, you'll have the Jews again on the last day. So, church, again, doesn't seem to be central to the whole redemptive purposes and redemptive storyline of Scripture. Uh, if you talk to a skeptic and you ask them what the church is, they'll tell you it's an opiate. The opiate of the masses, it's this pie in the sky mentality, is that this is how oh, it keeps us from focusing on the real needs of the people around us, the real suffering. Uh, you know, with, with the various types of violence that we've seen uh, all around us in the past months and the past few years, you know, people will say on social media, We're praying for such and such people. You're now starting to see a rise. And other people are saying, Well, prayer's not good enough. Um, We have to do something instead of pray. We see where prayer has got us, has gotten us nowhere. So you have these people who are skeptical of the purpose and mission of the church. If you were to ask uh, one of the mainline liberal churches, what is the purpose of the church? It's purely that of social welfare and relief. Purely that. It's a big debate you have in in the beginning of the 20th century and the the fundamentalist modernist debate. Uh, over the nature of the church, and uh, you think of the, the um, uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, novelist, Pearl S. Buck, uh, who wrote uh, such novels as The Good Earth, arguing uh, that uh, the role of Christian missionaries uh, to China, for instance, should be uh, nothing more than providing medical aid. They should not be preaching the gospel because uh, it is an undermining of um, uh, the, the, the basic uh, uh, cultural uh, tenets of uh, the Chinese people, and then you have uh, modern, uh, your, your fancy pants uh, modern scholars with their big words. You ask them what's the church about, they'll say, "Oh, it's nothing." Uh, Paul, uh, Jesus mentions the church twice in the Gospels. That's it for it. Really, for a lot of uh, even uh, modern New Testament scholars, they would say something uh, that Jesus doesn't say much about the church. The church is really Paul's invention, which I think is pure. Uh, garbage. But it does leave us with this particular question, what is the church and why is it important? As we have this uh, kind of uh, buffet of various answers set before us in our own uh, present day, uh, the the goal of the next uh, few months is to give a case for ecclesiology, a case for the study of the church, what the Bible tells us about the people of God. And so if you look at the schedule that we have here, our goal simply is to investigate what Scripture says about the church. Three broad contours we'll consider over the next three or four months. First, we'll consider uh, the church's nature. In other words, what is it? What is the church? What's the church's relationship to Israel? It's an important question. Um, What are the metaphors that Scripture gives regarding the people of God? What are the various aspects, the ways in which we can, we can approach the doctrine of the church according to Scripture? What are the attributes of the church? What is the church's power and authority? What does it look like? Well, after we consider what the church is, then we have to move on to consider what its purpose is, is for. Um, consider the mission and work of the church. What are we doing here every Sunday? What, what should I be preaching? What's the goal of preaching? What are the marks of a church? What do we see in the worship of the church? What are the duties and privileges of the people of God towards one another? And then finally, part three, we'll consider uh, how it works, the government of the church. We'll consider church officers, church government, church membership, and even church discipline. So the idea, again, is over the next few months to, to spend some time just thinking about this one simple topic, the church, and we're going to find out that the Bible has an awful lot to say about the people of God But first, I need to convince you that the Bible actually says stuff about the church. You know, if you were to uh, do a word search in the English Bible for church, you won't find it really pop up until you get to the New Testament. And so we have to ask, did the church begin in the New Testament, or does it precede it, and why can we say that? And to talk about that, we need to focus on what Jesus' main message was. Once we understand the relationship of the church to what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, this really open up a whole new world for us uh, in understanding what the Bible has to say about the church. So with that in mind, Mark chapter 1. It's a long introduction, and I almost apologize, but not really. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice here how Mark describes this, where he fills the content of Jesus preaching. Jesus goes preaching, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying what? The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, according to Mark's gospel, and according to the other gospels as well, at least Matthew and Luke, they summarize the preaching of the gospel in this, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has finally arrived. And what do we mean by finally arrived? How many of us uh, go through thinking about the kingdom of God as being the sum and substance of the Old Testament? You know, if I were to tell you the Old Testament summarized in, is summarized in this way, the fulfillment or the coming of the kingdom of God, how many of us would go, of course that's the summary, of course that's the the, the crib sheet, the cliff notes uh, to what the Old Testament is, but that's certainly how Jesus sees it. The kingdom of God is his shorthand declaration, his proclamation that all of the Old Testament promises are about to be fulfilled. See even Jesus' central message. When uh, what's Jesus' most used phrase when you read the Gospels? The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. You cannot escape Jesus preaching without recognizing that this is the content of Jesus' message—the proclamation or the the proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom of God—and so Jesus is telling us something about the Old Testament expectation. You know, for instance, if I can use this example, uh, when uh, the, the search committee just a few months ago uh, told y'all. Uh, We have finally found a pastor. Your new pastor is finally arriving. What what does that say about the church, uh, this particular congregation? That y'all were looking for a pastor. You are looking for a pastor to arrive. So when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is finally arriving, it is soon at hand, that gives us something of an indication of what uh, the Jews in the first century themselves were expecting. But the question we have is, why were they expecting the arrival of the kingdom of God and for that, we have to have a uh, maybe do, do, do a zoom out lens and consider the whole Old Testament message. Even if you begin in Genesis chapter one, what is God's first command to Adam and Eve? To rule the earth. It's kingly language. It's an exercise of dominion. Even when Adam rebels uh, against his maker, you have the first promise, the so-called proto. Uh, uh, Evangelium, the proto gospel, where God says, What? Well, I will put enmity between uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is a warfare that is to take place. It is a warfare that is contracted through an act of violence. He will Crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. The promise of the gospel entails the promise of a warfare between two rival kingdoms. When you read Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, 18, and 22, with Abraham, you have these same promises coming to uh, being filled out even further, where the Lord says uh, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 2, after promising Abraham already that there will be a blessing that comes to the nations through Abraham's offspring, the Lord says to Abraham at Mount Moriah, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. You think of that language. Paul Paul goes to great lengths in Galatians 3 to say, it does not say that your offspring, uh, it's not offsprings, plural, as if the nation of Israel will possess the gate of their enemies. Rather, there is an offspring, singular, who will possess the gate of his enemies. In other words, the promised son of the woman, the promised offspring of Abraham, would be a kingly figure who would exercise dominion and crush the serpent under his feet and exercise that authority and possess the gates of his enemies. You make it to David. What is it that's promised to David, who himself is the offspring of Abraham? It's one of the things, that as you read your way through the Old Testament, uh, uh, that these various uh, questions arise as you're reading. Is this the promised one, or should we look for another? That's why uh, Solomon and David and so many of these figures, even Noah, look like Adam over and over and over again. We don't have time to go into that here tonight. But we see these same images perpetuate itself over and over again, where we keep asking, "Is this the promise anointed Messiah? Is this a, the promise anointed King?" And of course, the uh, uh, the Hebrew word for anointed one, that uh, the the anointing, speaking of the anointed King, is Messiah. The Greek word Christos, Christ. Right, Christ is not Jesus' last name; it is an attribution. Of Christ's own kingship. And so what is promised to David? That there he would have a son, he would have an offspring who would sit on the throne of David for, uh, he, who would sit on David's throne forever. Not just for a really long time, but would rule and reign forever. You think of the prophets. You think of Isaiah who is proclaiming judgment to a nation that will soon be exiled for her sin, but the promise still remains. Even though Israel is exiled for the many sins she has done, she will still be given a king. One who is born of a virgin, chapter 7. One who is clothed in the Spirit from on high, chapter 9 and chapter 11. One who will be given a government that rests upon his shoulders. One who will suffer and die as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the people, and yet who will reign nevertheless, not only as king, but also as priest. In the final chapter of Isaiah, that this, conquering, this king will come and will conquer his enemies as he establishes a kingdom of peace and justice. In other words, the underlying narrative of the entirety of the Old Testament is the arrival of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus proclaims it has arrived, he is saying this, that all the promises that, have, that God has given to his people have finally made their way through the proclamation of the Son of God, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You make it to the Gospels, this is the substance that we find uh, all throughout the New Testament as well. When you look at the Gospels, for instance, in Luke, the emphasis, the highlight in in Luke's Gospel is that Jesus is the second Adam. Just as the first Adam came and he was supposed to rule and he uh, rebelled against his maker and so he forfeited his right to reign, so now the last Adam has come and by his obedience unto death has merited righteousness and life. That's why the temptation narrative in Luke 3 and 4 is so important. What is it that Satan keeps asking Jesus, are you the Son of God? Language designated for the kings of Israel. You get to Matthew, and it begins even with his own genealogy, the broken line of kings. Here here are the generations of the children of Abraham. From Abraham to David, from David all the way to the exile, and still... No king sits on the throne. That's the thing to remember. When the Old Testament ends, not a single one of God's promises have been f- fulfilled. So the Old Testament, by its very nature, anticipates a greater testament to come, a greater covenant, a new covenant, the very thing that Jeremiah promises in Jeremiah 31. And the, new, the epistles proclaim the same thing, that Jesus, by his resurrection from the dead, and marks his triumph over the great enemy. He has crushed the, the, the serpent under his feet. But it's not just Jesus' resurrection that's important in the letters of Paul or Peter. It is his ascension on high, that he has ascended on high and has taken his seat of authority as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah, that he is, in fact, the long awaited King. One of the things that we find in the New Testament is that we're not simply waiting for a future enthronement on Christ. Rather, the good news is that that enthronement has already begun. When Jesus ascended on high, what is the first thing he does? He pours out His Spirit on His church, securing the new covenant where He takes out the heart of stone and now puts God's law and inscribes it on our hearts so that we might finally walk in His ways. It's the good news of our great King. That He reigns now, Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Long ago and many times in a variety of ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken by His Son. There's a major contrast that, that sets the tone for the whole of the book of Hebrews, of the kingship of Christ, that we are not simply waiting for a future uh, millennial reign of Christ. Christ's reign has already begun. It came with the first advent of the Messiah. And it will be consummated at His second advent, at His return. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and now this King has come. And this King offers amnesty to sinners. That now, between now and the day of His return, He offers full pardon of sins to traitors. But after he returns, that offer will be extended no more. That's why preaching is so important. It's the proclamation of a herald saying the king is coming. He's offering uh, truce isn't even the, the be, isn't even the best word for it. It's not even him that, okay, we'll, we'll let you by and you're being held at arm's length. No, you have now been, you've been welcomed into this kingdom of grace, not only received as former enemies, but now received as sons of the Most High God. Ephesians chapter 1 concludes with this very thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. Ephesians 1, 3, right? Speaks of all the benefits that we have in our union with Christ as we are seated with Him now. Again, using that kingly language, the restoration of what had been lost in Adam. Finally restored in the Lord Jesus Christ. But verses 17 to 21 then focus on this, that Christ, having ascended on high, now governs all things, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It's a comprehensive scope to his authority. But then Paul says this, and Christ rules especially over his church, the very object of his affections, his very bride, you know, people might say, well, you don't find the word church in the Old Testament. Well, yes and no. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. You have a word that pops up over and over again, kahol, meaning assembly. It's a stated gathering where God assembles His people together. And when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what is that word? It's ecclesia. It's translated as church. That what we find So the church does not begin at Pentecost. Rather, Jesus is tapping into language already present in the Old Testament in his day and age. Yes, Jesus only gives the the language of church twice, but it doesn't mean that the concept is not there. Jesus is now speaking that the entirety of the people of God is now constituted around the true king who has been restored to the throne. Why is it that Jesus appoints 12 apostles? It's a very pointed reason. Here is the new king reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel as it were around himself. When Jesus ascends into heaven, Acts chapter 1, what's the question that the disciples ask? Lord, when will you restore the kingdom? And sure enough, the proclamation of the gospel has a threefold facet to the book of Acts. As the gospel goes from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, the old northern kingdom, to the ends of the earth, where now not only is this a kingdom for the Jews, but it's a kingdom that transcends the nations where both Jew and Gentile are welcomed in. And so what we find is the kingdom of God is central to our understanding our doctrine of the church. It opens up a whole new world for us when we find out that what we see in the New Testament is that the promises of the kingdom have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled, that the king has arrived and he has established a kingdom. That kingdom already exists, and what is the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth? It's the church. If you look here on the handout, I actually have it right here. If you read ahead, you were cheating, um, but it's okay. I didn't tell you not to do it, so. Uh, but what is the church? Westminster Confession of Faith 25.2. So you show I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is, this is in our Reformed heritage. This is the biblical teaching. The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we say that Christ is king, then the implication is that Christ has a kingdom. If Christ has a kingdom, then the implication is that kingdom has laws. And that kingdom has officers. And so what we see is that the the reality that the church is the manifestation, the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth. Not the United States of America, not the nation of Israel, not the Soviet Union. It is the church. That manifests the kingdom of God on earth. And so it has implications. Seven implications, at least. I'll go through them real quick, so don't be freaking out, thinking, oh no. So Here comes another 40-minute sermon. But I think there are several implications that this, the ramifications that this has as we think through what the church actually is. The first is this, the church is not a parenthesis. It's not God's plan B. The church is the place where Christ rules now just as he has promised. It is the assembly of God. As we'll look at over the next few weeks, this is not just kind of a loose get-together like this is the Kiwanis Club on Sunday mornings. Rather, this is a solemn stated assembly where God gathers his people on one day in seven and calls them to worship him. Second thing to consider, second implication, is that there is an organic relationship between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament church. I think many of us, and this I think would really help us as we read the prophets, because a lot of us want to read these Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel and then start looking for like some specially covered goat to to make its way in Jerusalem, Uh, or for the, the physical temple actually to be rebuilt. But when we find that there is what we call a typological correspondence, it is not Old Testament Israel, uh, New Testament America. Rather, it is that the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. It helps us understand um, the Old Testament in a way where we don't have to have some type of, you know, kind of post-Cold War decoder ring uh, to understand what the prophets say. There's an organic growth from, from an acorn to an oak tree. The Old Testament kingdom is the acorn, but the church is the oak tree. Third thing to recognize is that Christ's reign transcends the nations. It's not restricted to a little sliver of land in the Middle East. Christ rules over all things, and He rules especially and in a special way as the Redeemer of His church. Fourth, Christ's kingdom is not to be associated with any political nation-state, be it Israel or otherwise. This kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and it has its own set of laws, and it has its own king. We'll consider what those are. Help us to understand the nature of, for instance, the Ten Commandments, or the nature of church office, the nature of preaching, and the preaching office All these things, tremendous ramifications. That's why you always see in the the first chapter to any uh, Presbyterian uh, uh, book of church order, it always begins with what? The kingship of Christ. Because Christ is king, the pope is not. Because Christ is king, uh, the, the local monarch is not. Christ is our great high priest. The local preacher is not. Fifth thing to consider, Christ's kingdom is in fact a government Again, not a loose assembly, it has a king. This king has a rule of law for life and for worship within the redeemed community. God's word actually spells out how it is that we are to worship by giving principles. And so if you claim Christ as your king, what you think about Christ's present reign over this kingdom matters. It shows our relationship to Christ even now. Sixth implication, that when we read about the Old Testament kingdom or the promises of the kingdom of God, I think I mentioned this earlier, it bears directly on our understanding of the new covenant community. So now it opens up whole windows where we can actually apply the minor prophets to thinking about what is it like to live here in Corvallis in the 21st century. See, my goal is to help you read your Bible better. And that's why I think this is the starting point to understanding the nature of the kingdom of God and its relationship to the church. Finally, the Bible has a lot to say about the church and what it looks like to be a part of the church. And so, uh, brief conclusion, and a brief preliminary definition, we ask ourselves again, what is the church? We can say it is this, that the the church is the sphere of Christ's redemptive reign on earth. Christ rules over all things, but he rules as the redeemer of the people of God. He reads, the redeemer of the church. And this definition must be understood against that backdrop of the kingdom of God. So what we're going to do next week is we're going to try to fill out this definition a little bit more by looking at the various metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe the church. All right? Uh, So it's almost six o'clock. So you've been here 58 minutes. Um, I tell you what. Let us stand and sing the doxology together.